Hello, and welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, and it's great to have you back as we prepare to delve into week three of the CFL season. A shout out once again to everyone that has listened thus far. Hopefully you're back with us again this week. Just a reminder that you can follow me on Twitter at KDrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-88, or visit the website firstlinepicks.com to stay up to date on all the latest content. Feel free to send in any questions, comments, or feedback, positive or negative, that you may have regarding the podcast, the CFL, or just betting in general. Once again, that Twitter handle is kdrive88 or firstlinepicks.com. Well, last week kicked off with a wild, wild ride, the kind that only the CFL can provide. That 43.5 total in the Riders-Red-Blacks game might be the lowest we see all year, so it's only fitting that they would go on to play what could end up as the highest scoring game we see all year. No, the grinded out ground and pound contests that I boldly predicted never quite materialized, but it's hard to complain about the offensive show both teams put on, as the Red Blocks outlasted the Riders in a 44-41 thriller at TD Place. The biggest storyline coming out of this game could be that Dominic Davis and Cody Fajardo have served notice that they have every intention of establishing themselves as legitimate starting quarterbacks in this league. I'm not too surprised at what I saw out of Davis. Nobody has questioned the tool set he brings, and there were several perfectly thrown balls dropped into Dominic Rimes specifically in this game. But I'm not sure we quite foresaw a 41-point effort out of Cody Fajardo. Two weeks ago, the Riders seemed scared to attempt to pass longer than 10 yards with him in the game, while turning to Isaac Harker in the fourth quarter when they needed to stretch the field, and Craig Dickinson said prior to this game that he intended to use Harker again. So I was more than a little surprised at the number of deep shots the Riders took and how many of those they hit on. Fajardo never really gave Dickinson an opportunity to insert Harker as he hit on 27 of 34 passes for 360 yards. The Riders are obviously disappointed that all that came in a losing cause, but at least they might be sleeping a bit easier over the quarterback situation going forward. At the other end of the spectrum, the anticipated rushing battle between former teammates Moses Madu and William Powell never really got going. Powell had a really costly fumble on the opening series of the second half, and that was pretty much it for his night. I'm not sure if Coach Dickinson was trying to send a message, or if it was purely a strategic move, but Marcus Thigpen saw most of the reps from that point onwards, and he did a great job, I thought. He made several guys miss along the line and hit the second level a couple of times, and he hauled in a touchdown through the air earlier in the game as well. We'll see if the riders shift to more of a 1A, 1B type situation with Powell and Thigpen going forward, or if they revert back to Powell getting most of the workload. On the Ottawa side, you've got to give a lot of credit to offensive coordinator Winston October for the two games he's called so far. He's got the defense guessing on every play right now. I mean, you run the ball 25 times in a game you trailed most of the night in Calgary, then turn around and pass on 16 of the first 20 snaps in this one. Madu never got rolling, only grading successful on two carries in the first half, but that's alright because it was the Dominic show that took over instead. Dominic Rimes went head-to-head with Nick Marshall, who was one of the best cover corners in the league last year, and Rimes won the battle. I thought there was a tough illegal contact penalty on Marshall late in the second half that led to an important field goal, but Rimes earned all those catches in coverage, and a couple of those balls couldn't have been placed any better. So, as mentioned, the total got obliterated to the tune of 85 points, and I must imagine there were plenty of books out there breathing a small sigh of relief after how much under-action they took early on when it opened at 49. For our purposes, the Riders came through with that late major to cover 5.5 for us, and this final score brings up a couple of talking points. 
On the football side, Rick Campbell went for two on all three of his touchdowns, and they converted all three. I've harped on this point ever since they moved the extra point attempts back to the 25-yard line, and I'm not sure why more coaches don't go for two after touchdowns most of the time. The single isn't automatic at all anymore, as we saw with Brett Lowther missing an important one for Saskatchewan in the fourth quarter, and the two-pointer really isn't that tough to convert on a field that's 65 yards wide, and you only need to convert it half the time to be coming out ahead. I could eventually foresee a situation where it becomes the norm to go for two after a score, but Rick Campbell and Dave Dickinson have been the only two coaches that do so regularly. It was noteworthy that Orlando Steinhauer and Devon Claybrooks both went for two after touchdowns in their games this week, and perhaps this new wave of coaches is going to change the way converts are approached. On the betting side, that final rider's touchdown drive shows the importance of getting the best number. This line closed at 4.5 after being available at 5.5 for most of the week. If you were backing Saskatchewan at plus 5.5, the two-point convert attempt didn't matter at all, and in fact a miss was probably a better outcome than a hit in terms of taking the possibility of overtime off the table. But at 4.5, your fate all came down to the result of that convert play. And on the other side of the coin, getting the best number on Ottawa still left you breathing after the major, even if only temporarily. Moving along in our recap, the game between Edmonton and BC proved to be another interesting affair, which saw the Lions storm out of the gate only to go silent offensively once again as the Eskimos rallied from an early 17-3 deficit to win handily. This game was practically a carbon copy of the one the Lions played against Winnipeg on opening week. They were able to sustain a couple of drives early and put up some points through the air, but once again couldn't generate anything on the ground, and by the fourth quarter that Eskimo defense was teeing off against Mike Riley, recording a ridiculous seven sacks, most of those coming in the latter portion of the ball game. Overall, BC's offense sputtered along at just a 35% success rate, while Edmonton managed to finish around 60%, despite barely moving the ball at all in the first 25 minutes of the game. I'm not sure it's panic time yet for BC, but the offense was supposed to be the strength of this team, and they've been anything but thus far. The defense giving up over 30 for the second week in a row isn't a great look either, but when you factor in turnovers and the sheer amount of time they've spent on the field, it's understandable. Even if they're not scoring points, this offense has to find a way to at least pick up some first downs to give their defense a breather and maintain field position, or it's quickly going to turn into a disappointing season after initially having such high hopes. Edmonton seems to have taken a page out of the Winnipeg playbook with the run-pass balance they've employed so far, and we'll talk more about that momentarily as those two teams will play each other on Thursday night. The last game of the week is one the Toronto Argonauts would like to forget, as their provincial rivals from Hamilton hung up an unbelievable 64 points in what ended up as the most lopsided meeting ever between these clubs. I certainly had higher hopes for Toronto than what we witnessed on Saturday, but we need to keep things in perspective as it is just one game after all. I think what surprised me the most, though, besides such an ugly score, was how little effort the boatmen made to establish the run, and in general I thought the play calling was below par. Toronto only ran the ball five times on first down in the entire game, and while it's not surprising they would shelve it in the second half with such a big hole to crawl out of, this game was still well within reach at halftime. James Wilder got all six carries that they attempted in the game, and considering how many running backs Toronto has kept around, I thought they might spread the ball out a little more but we didn't see any of Declan Cross, and Chris Rainey was used purely as a return man. Brandon Burks and Tyrell Sutton didn't dress, and they're officially on the one-game injured list, though I haven't actually found any confirmation that either one is indeed hurt, and teams have been known to hide guys on the one-game from time to time. 
In terms of running the ball, the Tiger Cats had no opposition along the line of scrimmage, and their starting five on the offensive line put on a clinic in this one, even forcing a fumble that Hamilton recovered after Jeremiah Masoli was picked off early in the game. Sean Thomas Erlington saw the ball early and often and broke free for several big gains before giving way to backup Malik Irons in the second half. All told, Hamilton graded successful on 65% of rushing attempts and they were even better through the air. Toronto's linebacking core appeared to be a potential weakness coming into the year and they really had no answer to what Hamilton was sending their way. This was the second week in a row where Hamilton opened as less than a field goal favourite before eventually moving out to minus 4.5 on game day. And needless to say, they again covered both numbers, though this one was not a sweat in the least. Alright, moving along to what's in front of us, we have a battle of undefeated teams on hand for Thursday night, with Edmonton visiting the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. The Bombers opened as minus 3.5 favourites, and have since moved to minus 4.5, with some books now at minus 5. The over-under is held pretty firm, right around 58 points. The 3.5 is right where I had this line pegged to be set at, and I'm actually a little surprised at the amount of action Winnipeg has taken thus far. Before the season began, I think they would have been a no-brainer at this number, but Edmonton has shown better than most people expected on both sides of the ball so far. As I alluded to earlier, they have looked a lot like Winnipeg on offense, preferring to mix it up with both run and pass, and generally calling a lot of quick hits and intermediate pass patterns, rather than relying on the deep ball as they did in recent seasons. The big key on the defensive side for Winnipeg is how they're going to counter Trevor Harris's quick release. Edmonton has put a lot of pressure on the middle third of opposing defenses so far with how fast Harris is getting the ball out of there, and even with injuries along their offensive line, opposing pass rushers simply haven't had any time at all to penetrate the backfield. Traditionally, teams will use the run game to soften up a defense and then attack them over the top, but it has almost been the opposite approach from the Eskimos, who've used the quick passing game and some tempo to wear down the middle of the field before turning C.J. Gable loose in the second half to run against tiring tacklers. Winnipeg has their rock in the middle in the form of Adam Big Hill, and it's going to take a strong effort from him and his fellow linebackers to disrupt an Edmonton offense that's rolling right now. This will be the Eskimo defense's first test against a well-balanced offense. They've put in six really solid quarters out of eight so far, but containing Andrew Harris is going to be their biggest challenge of the young season. New defensive coordinator Philip Lawley has run a much more aggressive blitzing defense than the bend-but-don't-break defenses run by his predecessor Mike Benavides. BC had no answer to it last week due in large part to their failure to get a run game going or employ the screens and swing plays that can back off a blitz. Those plays are Winnipeg's bread and butter, so while I'm sure Lolly has no plans to dial back the pressure, he'll likely need to make some adjustments for the blitz to remain as effective as it has been. In any case, the Bombers' offensive line knows they have their work cut out for them. There's some new faces on this unit, but a strong effort in BC two weeks ago is a promising sign. The veterans Stanley Bryant and Jamarcus Hardrick will be going up against Kwaku Botang and Nick Usher on the edge, and Usher had a real breakout performance against BC. Mike Moore had a really strong game in the interior as well, and of course Almondo Sewell is considered one of the strongest men in the CFL, so we'll see if Winnipeg's inexperienced interior is able to stem their pass rush. Ultimately, I think the battle between these guys might be what turns this game one way or the other. The only defense that was really able to get over on this Bombers offense last season was Saskatchewan's aggressive unit, who forced a steady stream of turnovers against them, at least in the regular season. Matt Nichols is not a mobile quarterback and has had issues with turning the ball over when the defense brings the heat throughout his career, but if Winnipeg's line holds up, there's no reason to think their offense won't move the sticks. 
Edmonton had a great effort from their secondary last week, but Anthony Orange and Don Unamba are still out injured, and they could be vulnerable if Nichols has time to go through his progressions. This looks to be the first game of the year where I'm somewhat at odds with the market. Edmonton has shown enough in two games that I was reluctant to back Winnipeg giving up any more than a field goal. As this line moves closer to a touchdown, I'm leaning strongly towards seeing value in the underdog Eskimos. Winnipeg having to take an early bye in Week 2 wasn't exactly ideal, and I think there's potential for a little bit of first-half rust, in contrast to an Eskimos team that is riding some early momentum. Fast starts to the season have been the norm under Jason Moss, who has a pretty strong track record against Mike O'Shea, and I'd be surprised if this game was decided by more than one possession either way. With the way these two offenses have shown up, it's natural to expect points, and the books have responded accordingly with the over-under at 58. Something to be mindful of here is that neither offense has shown that they're willing to stretch the field, and that lack of big play potential has me thinking this game might be a good candidate for what I'll term a sneaky under. Two and outs will likely be rare in this game, and while it sounds counterintuitive, this could actually hamper scoring by burning up more clock. Punts occurring between the 40s is often a death knell for an over, and it wouldn't surprise me to see a handful of those in a game between two evenly matched opponents. In light of their 50-point manhandling of the Argos, the books have wasted no time in making the Tiger Cats prohibitive favorites against the visiting Alouettes, this line opening at a full two touchdowns in favor of Hamilton. The total is also the highest we've seen yet this season, coming in at 59 points. I've got to be honest, I think both of these numbers are a pretty substantial overreaction to one result. Hamilton definitely got their offense on track last week, but I think even they would admit that pretty much everything went right for them in the process. It's going to be pretty tough to duplicate that kind of performance for a second week in a row, and it's such a hefty number, even a 35-point effort would be no guarantee of covering. That same offense only scored a single touchdown in week one after all, so it's not like a 30-plus point performance can be taken for granted, even against a weak-looking opponent. What exactly we're going to see out of said opponent is the biggest unknown heading into this matchup. Vernon Adams will be getting the start for Montreal, who had an extra week to prepare due to the bye. Unlike Winnipeg, who I think could be hampered by the early bye week, Montreal having an extra week for new head coach Kahari Jones to get settled into the role that he only assumed on the eve of the regular season opening could be a positive. Antonio Pipkin was ineffective before leaving the season opener with an injured ankle that still has him sidelined. It was only one quarter of football, but Adams did look a whole lot more capable in relief than he has in most of his previous showings in this league, and we shouldn't forget that he led a big rally and almost pulled out a stunning win against an Eskimos team that shut down Mike Riley their next time out. Montreal is going to have to get William Stanback going along the ground better than they did in Week 1 if they're going to move the ball against this Hamilton defense, which has quietly turned in two very efficient performances. Adams himself will need to make use of his legs as well, and if there is one criticism to be had of this Ticats defense, it's that they've allowed 59% of opponent rushes to grade successful, which rates second last among the five teams who've played two games. If Montreal can avoid second and long situations, they'll at least be able to keep this defense guessing to some extent. As far as their own defense goes, they're going to need a better effort than what they provided in the season opener. Trevor Harris killed them with intermediate passes, and I was expecting a lot more out of this rebuilt secondary. The good news, potentially, is that they won't be facing the same type of quarterback this time out. Jeremiah Masoli has tended to move around within the pocket and improvise quite a bit in his first two games, and he has made some ill-advised throws in the process. I would imagine that protecting the football and knowing when to check down or toss it away will be stressed this week, 
is losing the turnover battle is probably the one thing that could put Hamilton at serious risk of losing the football game. I'd look to Montreal to try some blitzing off the edge in order to flush Masoli from the pocket. Hamilton's ironclad O-line will give him all day to find Brandon Banks, among others, if you allow him to do so, and I believe it's critical that the Owls come through with an effective pass rush. In spite of their week one showing, I'd be willing to trust the backfield personnel and single-man coverage in order to bring extra blitzers, but we'll see if the Owls coaching staff agrees. So given what I've just laid out here, I'm probably not surprising anyone by saying I agree with the move down to minus 13 from the opening number, and I'd guess that we might see another point get shaved off as kickoff approaches. Double-digit favorites have always been a tough sell on the CFL, especially this early in the season. We don't have to look too far back to find an example of a team left for dead before the calendar even turned to July, pulling off a surprise result. If you recall, these same Alouettes went into Regina in Week 3 last season and defeated the Rough Riders outright, just a week after the Blue Bombers hung a 56-10 beating on them at home. This total is interesting as well, and potentially a reaction to 6 out of 7 games so far hitting the over, but beware of small sample sizes. A total pushing right up against 60 is as high a number as you'll typically see a line set at, and I'm a little mystified that Montreal is one of the teams involved in such a situation. As much as I think Montreal can keep this game respectable, I still don't envision that being on the strength of a great offensive showing, especially considering Hamilton's strong pass defense so far. A bet on the over is probably reliant on the Tiger Cats scoring nearly 40 points, which is a big ask of even the strongest offenses. This number has trickled down a little, now sitting at 58 points, and it would have to go a few more points in that direction before the under stopped looking like the more attractive play to me. Onward we go to another all-western showdown, this one pitting the surprisingly winless Lions and Stampeders against each other on Saturday night at McMahon Stadium in Calgary. This is another game where the home side is opened as a huge favorite, with the Stampeders listed as minus 10.5 chalk, a number that is yet to see any movement. The total of 53 has also held firm thus far. I discussed the Lions' struggles offensively off the top, and I won't spend too much time beating on that drum further, but the Stampeders themselves are coming off one of the more lackluster offensive performances we've seen from them in recent memory. Their opening week effort against Ottawa saw them struggle mightily along the ground, and the passing game wasn't a whole lot better either, so they're going to be looking for a bounce-back performance as well. The situation of the Stampeders having only played a single game creates an interesting dynamic as far as the coaching matchup goes. Of course, the Lions are now led by former Stamps defensive coordinator Devon Claybrooks. Claybrooks is a defensive coach first and foremost, and his defenses went up against Bo Levi Mitchell in the first-team Stampeder offense every day in practice for the last several years, so it's no leap of faith to suppose he knows the playbook and Mitchell's tendencies. On the other side, Dave Dickinson does have two full games worth of film on BC to study, and I'm sure he was hard at work during the bye week prepping for this game. I was a bit surprised at the game Calgary called offensively in their opener. This is a team that has always seemed to call the perfect play at the perfect time to get themselves out of a jam over the past few seasons, so seeing the amount of times they put themselves into second and long, and the amount of passes they threw while playing with the lead wasn't something we're used to seeing. To be honest, it looked a little complacent, and perhaps a product of some boredom setting in for a team that hadn't lost a home game before August in several years. But there's nothing like a surprise early season loss to grab people's attention, and I think we see a much better showing out of the offense this time around. What Claybrooks has in response to keep that offense contained will be the key to this game. Make no mistake, this is now a must-win game for the Lions, who are at risk of dropping to 0-3 with all three losses coming within the division. 
0-3 is by no means a death sentence in a league where 6 out of 9 teams make the playoffs, but for a team who came in with first place aspirations, it would be a big setback. In a sport where in-game adjustments are paramount, Claybrooks has disappointed me in this regard. In both games so far, the Lions have started strong on both sides of the ball before their offense ground to a halt and the defense eventually buckled. Their offensive line has taken a lot of heat this week after Mike Riley was battered left and right against Edmonton, but even the best lines can be made to look porous if the defense doesn't respect the threat of a run. John White has seen practically all of the carries thus far and provides a lot of value as a strong blocker, but I'd really like to see Brandon Rutley given more of a look at this position. White is a straight-ahead runner capable of delivering a hit, but injuries have robbed him of any explosiveness and ability to sidestep tackles that he may have once possessed. A shiftier, quicker back in Rutley would be a change of pace for an offense that needs to figure out how to move the sticks along the ground in a hurry. It won't be easy to run on Calgary's front seven, who actually did a pretty good job of keeping Moses Madu in check in their first game. But as Ottawa showed, even runs that only pick up three or four yards can be effective in opening up play-calling options in second and medium situations. Calgary's defense only forced second and long on 30% of their defensive series against the Red Blacks, and eventually they got worn down. If anyone is going to know where weaknesses in this Calgary defense that can be exploited lie, it's Claybrooks. From a BC perspective, I'm cautiously optimistic that they'll be able to move the ball better in this game than the previous two. To echo my thoughts on the Hamilton-Montreal game, laying this many points this early in the season when teams are still trying to find their way is a big risk. Funny things tend to happen in week 3 or 4, and while you don't want to underreact to the results we've witnessed, I can't get on board with writing the lines off just yet, even as somebody who felt they were being overrated coming into the season. A little bit of early season desperation can often yield a big effort, and while Calgary is under the gun a little bit themselves at 0-1, BC really needs to bring their A game in this one. This is another game where I think the team who's already played twice, including one on the road, is going to be at a slight advantage compared to the team that just took a two-week break that they probably didn't really want. These teams were pretty much co-favorites to win the Grey Cup two weeks ago, and we haven't yet played enough football to justify the winless Stampeders laying 10.5 points, despite BC's struggles. Covering 10.5 and winning the game outright are obviously two entirely different things, but at plus 3.75, or 4.75 in decimal odds format, I actually think the money line has very solid value here as well, and might be worth a sprinkle. As far as the over-under of 53 goes, Calgary's been a very tough team to get a handle on as far as totals go in recent seasons, to the point that you're pretty much throwing a dart, so I'd maybe avoid this one. If you're really eager to get a totals bet down, I'd lean towards the first half over, for no other reason than BC has shown the ability to move the ball early in football games, and easily went over in the first half of both their previous games. Last but not least, the nation will celebrate Canada Day CFL style with a matchup between the Toronto Argonauts and the host Saskatchewan Roughriders, who opened as 13.5 point favourites in another game with a rather large number. Total for this one sits at 54. So we've got two winless clubs going head-to-head -head in this one, but the manner in which Saskatchewan found themselves at 0-2 is obviously a little different than how the Argos performed in their lone game. Nonetheless, I can't help but think this number is another harsh reaction to a limited sample of play, in this case Toronto's blowout loss likely being the catalyst behind it. You've got to turn the page quickly in the world of sports, and I'm sure they're focused on what they need to do right to ensure Coach Corey Chamberlain has a successful return to the city he led to a Grey Cup in 2013, rather than everything that went wrong against Hamilton. I think first and foremost the Argonauts need a better showing from their offensive line. 
They made headlines before and during training camp with the releases of Chris Van Zyl and Josiah St. John, and the somewhat new-look O-line was not particularly effective against Hamilton, giving up four sacks and failing to open any holes for the run game. Their job will not get any easier in a matchup against Saskatchewan's defensive line, who have only allowed just under half of opponent runs against them to grade successful. I'd like to see Toronto get a little more creative here, as just trying to run it up the gut is not going to work against this defensive front. The next thing they need is better showing out of James Franklin. The man who won the starting job in training camp is going to need better than a sub-50% success rate on design passing plays if he's going to retain his position. Ottawa showed the ability to pick up chunks through the air against this Riders defense, though I'd still be leery of throwing too often at what I'm sure will be a very motivated Nick Marshall, who was victimized repeatedly by some of Dominic Davis's perfect strikes last time out. This looks to be a strength-against-strength matchup downfield, with the vaunted Riders secondary tasked with keeping receivers Darrell Walker, S.J. Green, and Armonte Edwards from lighting it up through the air. All three ended up with at least four catches last Saturday, but quite a few of those were with the game already out of hand. Franklin has to establish some chemistry early and make better decisions with the football. A terrible pick thrown right into the hands of Simone Lawrence ended up being the straw that broke Toronto's back in the previous game and started the blowout, and critical mistakes like that can't happen. I would expect a strong pass rush from the Riders in an attempt to force mistakes, so Toronto's ability to move the pocket around is going to come into play. Franklin isn't noted as a rusher, but I felt he was a little too stationary at times against Hamilton, and it played into the hands of the defense. I think Toronto can be effective with a short passing game, and they did try this to a point against Hamilton, but too many receivers were stationary upon catching the ball and got swallowed up quickly. This will be our second look at Cody Fajardo as a starting QB, and besides a notch in the win column, he did just about everything he could have hoped for in his first full game. The amount of explosive passing plays the Riders connected on was certainly a surprise, and it wouldn't shock me to see them try to stretch the field again against the Sargos defense that had very few answers last week. If Powell and Thigpen in the backfield are able to run anywhere near as effectively against the Argos as the Ticats did, this should open up a lot of options in the passing game. Still, I think the Riders need to be a little weary of taking too many shots downfield early. One great game from Fajardo, who was largely ineffective against Hamilton for three quarters in the season opener, shouldn't be enough to alter Craig Dickinson's initial philosophy coming out of training camp, which was to establish the run and control time of possession first and foremost. Until Toronto's front seven demonstrates an ability to stuff the run, I'd expect a steady dose of Powell and Thigpen. The Riders have run on 50% of their first down plays thus far, and there's no reason to change that against this defense. The line for this one has made its way down to minus 11.5, and with the game not taking place until holiday Monday, there's still plenty of time for more movement. It's not out of the question that the results we see in the first three games could have a small influence on where this number goes during the lead-up to kickoff. As I've stressed throughout the show, these are some of the largest spreads we're likely to see all year, and how good or bad the heavy underdogs show in the earlier games could hold some sway in the minds of betters. I don't think we'd quite crack the minus 10 barrier, but I could see another point or point and a half getting shaved off this spread by Monday evening. I think the value still lies with the boatmen for as long as this spread remains above 10 points, and if you were able to grab 13.5 at the open, I think you've got a pretty promising investment on your hands. The total is tough to get a good read on, and not surprisingly perhaps, it hasn't shown much movement, falling just a hair to 53.5 from the 54 open. The fact is, both sides of the ball have looked good and bad for Saskatchewan so far, while Toronto was poor in all facets last Saturday. 
I think the riders we saw in week one are probably a more accurate representation of things to come than the riders we saw in week two, but the Argos are too much of an unknown at this point for me to feel confident staking either side of this total. I'm looking forward to all four of these games, and all four have a reasonable degree of importance even though it's only week three. There's a few numbers I like this week, but if there's one that stands out above the others, I'd have to give it to the Lions getting 10.5 points in Calgary. A wounded animal tends to fight back the hardest, and I think we see all hands on deck for the Lions on Saturday night, and they find a way to at least keep it close in an effort to secure their first victory of the season. That will wrap things up here for episode number three of Third Down Gamble. Hopefully things are sounding a little smoother with each passing week, and I thank everyone again for tuning in. Once again, if you'd like to get in touch, don't hesitate to hit me up on Twitter at kdrive88 or on the web at firstlinepicks.com. Enjoy the holiday weekend, enjoy the football, and whichever side you're on, best of luck, and we'll see you again next week on Third Down Gamble.